You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for tuning in to AOA today. We've got a lot coming on today's program. We're going to dig into these green markets. A little bit of red on the screen today. Dwayne Plessy of Bolt Marketing will fill us in on what he's watching here ahead of this coming three-day weekend. And then in segment two, we're going to talk with Troy Breedenkamp from the Renewable Fuels Association. He's in Omaha with the Fuel Ethanol Workshop this week. We're going to talk about what's ahead in that industry. And then in segment three, Dan Halstrom, President and CEO, U.S. Meat Export Federation, will join us. West Coast port issues are hitting meat exports. Dan will fill us in on the impact. And then finally, we're going to go by talking with Greg Solier, meteorologist on This Week in Agribusiness. Weather is on traders' minds. Greg will fill us in on what he's watching in the week ahead. But... Let's talk weather. Let's talk weather and the impact on the markets. Joining us now, Dwayne Bussey, Bolt Marketing up in Britain, South Dakota. Dwayne, how are things looking up there in South Dakota? Well, it, it's okay, I guess. Uh, we've got a little bit of everything. We've got some dry pockets that are just screaming for rain. We've got some areas like Southeast South Dakota last week got a nice shot of rain. Uh, a good chunk of North Dakota got a nice rain last week too, but drying up quickly is uh, above normal temps have sure been here. And Almost everyone could use another drink of water. You just got small parkets that are wet. So that did help to finish planting the crop in North Dakota. I went through there last couple of days. I was impressed. There's still prevent plant though. It's just, it's not as, it's not the disaster I thought it was going to be a couple of months ago. Let me put it that way. Yeah, it's incredible how quickly that blanket of white snow turned into water and got that crop in the ground. Dwayne, you mentioned the trade is watching for rain here. As we take a look at the screens, we've got red corn, beans, and wheat. I'm assuming that means one of these models shows that there might be some more rain in the forecast. Yeah, you're exactly right. I, I like the way you put it. One of the models, because yeah, we obviously watched the GFS and the European model. And this morning, there was a little bit of a, a flip from the European model actually puts some moisture over Illinois for Monday uh, of next week. But oddly enough, the GFS, which has been the wetter model, is fairly dry for that area for next week. So, you know, it's still the same thing. You get more than five days out, it's really hard to predict. And, you know, we get about a different weather model every six hours. So these markets stay volatile. We were down fairly hard, but we're already kind of inching back, Mike. I, I'm okay to see some red on the screen because we've really... When you look at a chart, it's rallied quite nicely from the low. So a little bit of red today isn't the worst case deal. It's not, Dwayne. You know, taking a look at where where we are seeing this reversal. December new crop at five fifty. Is that a mark you're watching here for a substantial uh, overhead resistance? Hey, you know, five fifty definitely is a psychological thing. I mean, we we pushed way through it yesterday. We just didn't have the best close, so that's why we're seeing some early selling pressure here this morning. We're probably also seeing just a little bit of selling pressure because. We've got a three-day holiday weekend coming up. Uh, June 19th is Juneteenth now, and that's national holiday, so no trade. So market always starts positioning up, squaring up positions a little bit beforehand. And we probably don't venture far north or south of 550 going into that weekend. Then, of course, come Monday night when the trade opens back up, it's all about those two weather model updates and what their forecast is then. Looking over at the soybean market, Dwayne, here on the new crop side, again, just like everything else, we're down a little bit, six uh, six and change here today. Mm -hmm. well, how are you managing some of this risk? Uh, are, are you taking advantage of any of these prices quite yet, or do you think we've got another spike as we get a little deeper into summer? 
I think we've rallied enough. It's time to start making some new crop sales on the soybeans. It wasn't smart enough to sell it earlier in the year when it was higher, of course, but we, we assumed there would have been a spring rally, a weather rally, and there just wasn't. Very unseasonal the way the chart pattern ended up forming here. But you know, I don't think the acres are all there for both corn and soybeans. I think principal crop acres are down. So there's part of me that wants to wait till June 30th to see if if I'm right on that. But you get 1250 and higher for new crop beans. I don't have a problem starting to leg some in because that Brazil crop continues to get bigger as Conab overnight came out with a, a little bit more of a bump in their production estimate for those Brazil soybeans. I mean, it's incredible. We are still talking about that growing crop down there in South America. Dwayne, are they clicking on all, all cylinders when it comes to exports? Are we seeing those Brazilian soybeans on the global market at, at the level we'd expect? Yeah, absolutely. They really are. They, they've come a long ways in the last two, three, five, and a huge jump from last 10 years ago as, as far as their crop area and then being able logistically to get it out of the country. They have really made strides there. It is Now, it's going to be interesting when the second crop corn comes to harvest here too. I don't think they quite have the structure to export two record crops, a, a soybean crop and corn crop at the same time. So someone, maybe we'll get a little bit more soybean business. And maybe that's why the soybeans have been stronger here recently. Okay. All right. Things to watch. And Dwayne, you'd expect them to hit their full stride with corn as well. What, probably six, eight weeks on the export stage down there? Yeah, I, I think you're really close there. Four to six weeks, probably. Harvest is a little bit delayed, but I wonder if that isn't just logistic problems and the and the crop was planted just a little bit later. But boy, that looks like a record second crop of corn as well. I, I hate to burst everybody's bubble there, but they got another bigger one coming. So they've got a big crop coming. We're watching this crop here in the U.S. Dwayne, it sounds like we might have some opportunity for cheaper corn later this fall. And it seems as yeah. though the feeder cattle guys have caught wind of that. This feeder cattle market is still on fire, isn't it? It, it really is. You know, we paused once we got November feeders up around that 245. Well, we, I guess it went all the way above the 250 area, but the nearby is the August got to that 245. That's kind of the old contract highs for the continuous chart. And we, we pumped the brakes just a little bit and probably rightfully so because the index is, is quite a ways behind us, the cash numbers, but they're trending higher. And I think the feeders futures are just pausing a little bit until the cash can get caught up. Uh, yeah, you're right. If corn's cheaper, we know feeder numbers are going to be down this fall. And if we continue to get these rains in the, I'd say, the western part of the plains, that'll green up these pastures again. And that means heifer retention then probably and these high prices, everyone want to build their herd back up. All that means is possibly even higher feeder prices. I mean, I, 260 is definitely not out of the realm of a possibility, but from 245 and higher, like I, I'm just telling guys, you know, get some insurance, some LRP or buy some puts, do something to... Uh, uh, just risk management of that huge capital investment they have in their cattle. Right, right. These are these are extremely high values. They're worth worth getting some protection in. And I've got the same question for you on live cattle. We continue to watch this cash trade be in record territory. Dwayne, have we heard any indications of cash trade yet this week on the live side? I have not. You know, I, I watched our local sale barns Tuesday morning. Yankton always has a good sale, and that appeared to be about steady money there, which is close closer really to that one ninety for the good ones. So. That looks pretty solid, uh, but steady money with last week means the futures don't have to necessarily rally. We're in a tough spot right now because, you know, most people are trading August and October. Well, they're at a huge discount to cash, but it's also a really long ways away from those two contracts being in delivery. So they don't have to, air quotes, do anything we think they need to right now. So, you know, market's still very strong. Uh, box beef still trending higher. I, I don't see this market falling apart. I don't think that was the high last week, but uh, it might take a little bit of time to go test it again.
All right. We'll watch and learn. It all depends on whether or not that consumer continues to buy beef when they walk up to that meat case in the grocery store. Folks, we've been talking here with Dwayne Bussey of Bolt Marketing. Dwayne, as always, we appreciate your insight and thanks for joining us here on AOA. Yeah, anytime. Thanks, Mike. And folks, stick with us. We're going to have more AOA coming up. We're going to turn our focus next to the ethanol industry. Troy Breedenkamp, public affairs expert with the Renewable Fuel Association, will be joining us when AOA returns. We're going to talk about the Fuel Ethanol Workshop, the international gathering of ethanol experts happening in Omaha this week. Leave it here. We'll have more AOA when we return. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. On the first Wednesday of every month, our friends from the National Corn Growers Association join us here on AOA for a segment we call The Monthly Grind. This month, we talked with Wendy Osborne of Ohio Corn and Ralph Lentz of the U.S. Meat Export Federation Board. Wendy, this partnership between grains and livestock is an important one, isn't it? Yeah, so corn growers recognize that 95% of the world's population lives outside the U.S., so trade is just so important to the U.S. farmer. And American corn farmers want to help increase demand for U.S. beef and pork around the world that in 2021, Beef and pork exports, this is just the exports, Mike, they accounted for 537 million bushels of corn usage, which equates to about $2.94 billion. Ralph, that's a huge figure. What areas around the world look hot for meat exports in 2023? Anything in Asia, Korea, Japan, China, they, they all love our corn-fed beef. That's not duplicated anywhere in the world. Pork products are moving well. They've got a taste of our red meat, and they don't like fish anymore. They're moving more than red meats. Tune in Wednesday, July 5th for the next Monthly Grind on AOA. The archaeological record suggests that wheat was first cultivated in the regions of the Fertile Crescent, also known as the Cradle of Civilization, around 9600 BC. The Roman goddess Ceres, who was deemed protector of the grain, gave grains their common name today, cereal. Wheat is the primary grain used in U.S. grain products. Approximately three-quarters of all U.S. grain products are made from wheat flour. The first bagel rolled into the world in 1683 when a baker from Vienna, Austria, was thankful to the king of Poland for saving Austria from Turkish invaders, the baker reshaped the local bread so that it resembled the king's stirrup. The new bread was called bugel, derived from the German word for stirrup. Ancient traditional tortillas were made from ground corn by Mexican natives as long as 2,000 years ago. However, flour tortillas only started to become popular in the 19th century. More types of foods are made with wheat than with any other cereal grain. These farm facts brought to you by the American Egg Network. Nothing offers an opportunity to bond and give thanks quite like breaking bread together. This is especially true as we welcome our troops back home and keep those who are still stationed overseas in our hearts. Hi, I'm Gary Sinise. Since 2011, the Gary Sinise Foundation's Serving Heroes program has shown gratitude to our nation's defenders and their families by serving up nearly 500,000 hearty classic American meals at travel hubs and military locations. And now, together with our friends at Bob Evans Farms and their Our Farm Salutes program, we will help to provide even more meals nationwide, offering our defenders a taste of home and a feeling of togetherness around the table. Help us show America's gratitude through food and fellowship. Look for the Bob Evans Our Farm Salutes purple packaging at your grocery store and visit ourfarmsalutes.com to learn more. While we can never do enough to support the men and women who serve together, 
we can make a difference bite by bite. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Information farmers and ranchers need to know. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. AOA continues today, and we're turning our focus to biofuels. Joining us now is Troy Breedenkamp. He's the Senior Vice President for Government and Public Affairs at the Renewable Fuels Association. And Troy, thank you so much for joining us on AOA today. Hey, Mike. Happy to be with you. Now, I understand you're over in Omaha at the International Fuel Ethanol Workshop, big event in the ethanol industry. Jeff Cooper, your CEO, had the opportunity to keynote it. Can you fill in our audience a little bit? What is the IFEW? Well, the Fuel Ethanol Workshop is probably the largest, I I believe it is the largest uh, trade uh, meeting of the ethanol world uh, on an annual basis. Got a lot of plant managers, a lot of plant personnel coming uh, together once a year for technical workshops, and there's a little policy discussion as well. So uh, Jeff did a great job keynoting um, and and kicking off uh, the fuel ethanol workshop here in Omaha yesterday. Troy, I'm curious, how are attitudes in the ethanol industry, not just domestically, but globally? When everybody has a chance to get together, are, are they optimistic about the, the future of the biofuels industry? You know, Mike, they really are. Um, when you look at everything that is ahead of us in terms of opportunities, uh, a lot of it is centered around uh, low carbon opportunities. So as ethanol, which is naturally uh, lower in carbon than, than, than gasoline, but then you add to that the fact that we are continually improving our product by even getting uh, lower and lower carbon produced ethanol that's opening up a lot of doors, not only here in America, but throughout the world. People are looking for a low carbon source and biofuels like ethanol is a perfect source for them to be utilizing. So we're happy about it. And I see that attitude across the country and really across the globe. Well, that is certainly good news to hear. And, you know, as we think about this push for the energy transition to rely on biofuels rather than just electrifying everything, you know, at conversation, Troy seems to always come back to aviation. We burn so much fuel in these planes and there's just not a good way to electrify it. Sustainable aviation fuel is in the news. It was in the news. There's a new bill, I understand, in Congress. Can you talk about what the industry would like to see with regard to sustainable aviation fuel going forward? Yeah, uh, sustainable aviation fuel is really the new buzz term, and it's and it's a huge opportunity. It's one of those opportunities that I just mentioned from a low carbon perspective. The lower the carbon in ethanol, the bigger the opportunity is for ethanol to participate in a sustainable aviation fuel market. What they're looking for is a product that is obviously lower in carbon, sustainable, um, and you're right, uh, an airplane is going to be very hard to electrify. And, and so it's a great opportunity for us. Uh, we were pleased to see the bill that was introduced yesterday because one of the challenges that we have in talking about sustainable aviation fuel is the modeling that will be used to accurately um, qualify various fuels based on that low carbon parameter. And so we're very uh, supportive of the Argon GREET model developed by the Department of Energy. It is up to date, it is current, it is accurate in our opinion, uh, and it accounts for a 
total life cycle analysis of all the various fuel types that might go into a program. Uh, the bill yesterday would require argon greet to be the model of choice to be used when we're calculating those uh, carbon intensities. And so that's a bill that we like. We certainly like to see that. But as we move forward uh, in the implementation of the Inflation Reduction Act, this modeling issue continues to, to creep up and we have to continually be vigilant to make sure that that the modeling language is correct so that, again, ethanol and other biofuels have an opportunity to participate in this burgeoning market. And Troy, you know, we, we, you mentioned models a lot there. The the idea that we've got to come up with with ways to simulate how these fuels will perform out there in the open. You mentioned the GREET model. Um, is the challenge that we're running into that government agencies have the option to use other models so we're ending up with different measurements? Is that the situation we're in today? Well, we could. If if we don't get that modeling language fixed, we could end up with, with separate models. One of the issues is the environmental groups like a model called ICAO, the International Civil Aviation Organization model. That model, unfortunately, uses outdated uh, data and inputs and really doesn't give corn-based ethanol the, the, the due justice that it deserves from a carbon intensity perspective. So we would say that model is outdated. That's not good science. Argon Greet is good science. That's why we're very supportive of using it way more than we use ICAO. Unfortunately, the way the Inflation Reduction Act was written, there is options that are available out there. We're just hoping that the best option is on the table, and that would be the Greet model developed by the Department of Energy. Okay, Troy. Now that makes a lot of sense. The other question I've got for you, I guess more is, is a political realism question. This is a, a nuanced issue. It's a fairly specific issue when we're talking about modeling for environmental purposes. What's mm -hmm. the likelihood we could get the, the momentum behind this to see this crafted into law? Or do you think we'll attach it to something else that's coming through this Congress? Most likely it will be attached. Matter of fact, we're working on two different pieces of legislation. One is the National Defense Authorization Act. Uh, that has a pilot program in there for sustainable aviation fuel. And again, the modeling language in that small provision has to be accurate. The other provision or the other piece of legislation that's moving is the uh, Federal Aviation uh, author Reauthorization of the FAA. That program, again, has a pilot in there for sustainable aviation fuel. And that, again, has some modeling language that we have to continue to work on to make sure that it's proper and it's accurate and it's calling for argon greet to be used so that biofuels has an opportunity to participate in that program as well. So each and every place we see this legislation popping up, we have to be ready and working hard to make sure that the proper language is being uh, adopted so that it gives us the best shot of participating from a, from a biofuels and an ethanol perspective. Absolutely. We want to make sure the data is reflective of a level playing field amongst all the different technologies out there. Troy, while we've got you on the line this week, not just the International Fuel Ethanol Workshop, we were also supposed to get the final set rule from the EPA over the next three years of renewable volume obligations. But I understand we're not going to see that uh, at least for another week. Is that right? That is correct. We um, were expecting it to be released today. Um, we got notified yesterday that there was going to be a one-week delay. So we anticipate it coming out uh, next Wednesday. 
No surprises. We're not expecting surprises, at, at least from what we're picking up, Mike. It should be pretty close to what was uh, proposed. Um, we think there's going to be some movement in the right direction for advanced biofuel. I know there's been a big push to get that D4 REN number up, and I think it will come up a little bit. Maybe not as high as people wanted it, but certainly moving in the right direction. So um, one week delay, but I think we'll get a pretty good answer in a product that we're, from an RFA perspective, uh, pretty satisfied with once it is released next week. And Troy, as far as I understand it, once this set is released next week or whenever they do decide to release it, we'll be done with this issue for three years. Is that right? <laughs> that is right. We're we're really looking forward to that. Um, those people that may not be as familiar with it as we are, this has been a year-to-year -year program. Uh, this is the first year that EPA had the opportunity to set the own number, or really set their own number, and they did a three-year program. So it'll cover 2024, 2025, and 2020, actually 2023, 2024, and 2025. So it'll be a nice uh, way to uh, not have to deal with this issue for at least a couple years. And then I'm sure in that third year, we'll start talking about it again. But yeah, certainty is good for the marketplace. And I think we'll get that from this set rule. Well, that is good to hear. And if nothing else, at least we've got the requirements before the year the requirements are in has ended. That is a huge gain for the EPA. Folks, we've been talking with Troy Breedenkamp here, Senior Vice President for Government and Public Affairs at the Renewable Fuels Association. And Troy, before we let you go, this is a big policy summer. Are there any other biofuels issues that you think listeners need to be aware of? Well, certainly we continue to work on solidifying a national legislative solution to year-round E15. We have the emergency waivers happening this summer. Biden administration has been good on that issue, but really the answer is to have a national legislative solution to that. Uh, the Consumer and Fuel Retailer Choice Act is out there. Um, it would resolve that E15 issue for good. And so we're gonna be pushing for a solution there uh, that's really top priority for us as we move through this legislative uh, season and figure out what might be able to be passed by the end of the year. There's a lot of congressional work ahead of us, folks. Troy Breedenkamp, Senior Vice President for Government and Public Affairs at RFA. Troy, as always, thanks for joining us and have fun at the Fuel Ethanol Workshop. Thank you, Mike. Thanks for having me. Folks, stick around. Dan Halstrom, President and CEO of the U.S. Meat Export Federation, will join us when AOA returns. We're going to talk about those labor struggles over on the West Coast port. Stick around for more AOA. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, as we discuss how cooperatives support farmers and ranchers and build strong communities. Each week, we'll chat with voices from across the cooperative system. From global market access to local expertise, we'll explore how co-op ownership means you own a world of opportunities. Tune in on Tuesdays or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. At YMCA Summer Camp, kids find their why. Friendship and fun, a world of adventure beneath a golden sun. Running, laughing, full of wonder. Being themselves is second nature. Summer Camp is where they begin to unlock the confidence that lies within. 
When kids find new passions, they find their why. Summer camp season starts soon. Learn more at ymca.org for a better us. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. Well, overall, the grains and oil seeds are pushing moderately lower in early action. We've seen some active chart-related selling overnight and into Wednesday's trade as fund managers not really impressed after yesterday's rally in the grain and oil seed market lost momentum late in the day, and that's resulted in some of this active selling. Fund managers are just trading chart signals, not necessarily what is happening with our corn and soybean crops in the fields right now. They're looking at seasonal price tendencies, which tend to not be friendly for the bulls in the last half of June unless a compelling story for the weather event is unfolding. A lot of market analysts try to make comparisons between this year and 2012, but that's not really the case. A lot of meteorologists are not finding the same comparison, and typically meteorologists are the ones who advise many fund managers. Now, in the case of this corn market and soybeans as well, we are seeing the forecast calling for rain over the next five days across the northwestern plains and the southeastern corn belt. States near the Great Lakes, though, only expecting moderate amounts. Potential frost for Brazil's second corn crop have not caused prices to move higher there. They're still sitting at the equivalent of 462 a bushel. That Brazilian safrina corn crop now estimated at a record 96.3 million metric tons. Also, soybeans met some technical resistance yesterday against the 50-day moving average and one-month high, but are far below the 100-day average. Overall, we are moderately lower in the grains. It's also Fed Day on Wall Street. We'll wait to see what the Federal Reserve does with their interest rates. Will they make another interest rate hike or not? We'll find out at 1 p.m. Central Time here on Wednesday. Livestock trade relatively mixed. Hogs finding some good buying strength with triple-digit gains in the summer 23 contracts. June will go off the board after today's session. Cattle futures moderately lower. This is AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover guitar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information farmers and ranchers need to know. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. AOA continues today, and since I've been the host of this program, one theme has continually come up, and that has been labor shortages. Whether we're talking on the ground in agriculture, in the apple industry, or in the dairy industry, or if it's in the supply chains, whether it's trucking or railroad locomotive control conductors or 
of course, port workers. These things have all been in the news and ports are back in the news right now. They are causing a headache for beef exports, particularly over on the West Coast. Joining us now for an update on this situation is Dan Halstrom. He serves as president and CEO of the U.S. Meat Export Federation. Dan, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you, Mike, for having me. Let's start here with this port situation. These these are the West Coast ports, Dan. They've been, been in labor struggles for a little while. Can you fill us in on the situation and how it's hitting meat exporters? Yes, without a doubt. Um, so uh, they've been, the West Coast uh, Union, Longshoremen's Union, has been working without a contract since last uh, July of 2022. And while that's not unusual to go beyond the date, it is a bit unusual to be a whole year out. And uh, um, while there's been reports of some progress being made on some of the issues with the union, uh, the bottom line is there still is not a, an agreement or a contract in place. And as you mentioned a minute ago, there has been some uh, disruption on the West Coast, uh, most recently in the Oakland port, but we've also had a, a few days of disruption in Long Beach as well. So uh, this is a concern on many fronts for many commodities, but specifically on beef and pork. <clears throat> this is our number one um, uh, port of discharge uh, going to North Asia. And North Asia, especially in the, in the realm of chilled beef and chilled pork, uh, is our most important market for program business. So any kind of disruption, be it a few days or longer, uh, is a big problem in terms of shipping product reliable each and every week over to North Asia. Absolutely. And with the values in the meat business where they are right now, we need to make sure that every ton is moving and is paid for. Dan, he mentioned it's been a year. These labor struggles have been going on. I understand they're intensifying, and now it seems as though the White House is involved or might be involved. Are we getting any closer to a resolution? Well, I do. I honestly do believe we are getting closer. Uh, this is part of the process. And, uh, <clears throat> yeah, the, the fact that uh, there's uh, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce got real vocal a few days ago uh, wanting to get the White House more involved and, and get to get the process moving along quicker. So I think in that regard, that's a positive. But uh, the bottom line here is that uh, uh, we, we need to continue. To, one of our selling points globally for a lot of commodities is being a reliable supplier. And that means shipping each and every week. A lot of this chilled business goes every week, and it delivers every week over to Japan, Korea, China. And that's at risk if there's any kind of, uh, any kind of a, a stoppage or, or uh, of even a few days. Dan, can, can I ask a, a, a kind of a stupid question, if you don't mind? I'm curious about the actual containers. When we're shipping chilled beef to South Korea, for example, is that meat in the container? Is the container itself refrigerated, or does it need to be in a cold chips hold in order to stay chilled for the journey over? No, the containers are refrigerated. The individual containers, they have plug-ins. It's all computerized. It's very uh, reliable. Um, and, and, you know, when we say chilled, that means they're shipping at, uh, you know, 30 to 32 degrees Fahrenheit versus zero, which would be a frozen container. So, um, but it's important for both frozen and chilled. I mean, you know, there's a shelf life concern with the chilled, but there's also a service uh, reliability factor for frozen as well. So, but, but to answer your question, uh, the individual containers are chilled and plugged in and it's all computerized and monitored on the ships.
All right, Dan. So we've got this issue, hopefully working towards some kind of a resolution in the short term. Bigger picture, how does the demand perspective still look from Asia? Do we need these ports operating 100% capacity to meet the demand from over there? Oh, without, without a doubt, we need them operating at full capacity because what's happened over time here is that uh, with this uncertainty for the last year, we've seen kind of a slow, steady uh, migration away from the West Coast, not only on export, uh, but more importantly on the imports because it all works together. The imports come in, containers are offloaded, and we reload them going back to Asia. And we've seen some of the capacity get diverted to Gulf ports and to the East Coast ports. That is not advantageous for us. With the shelf life concern, the shortest transit time to North Asia is from the West Coast. So, uh, yeah, in, in general, the outlook is very positive. Uh, we still have very good demand in North Asia especially, but we have competitors like Australia on the beef side, Canada, uh, Europe on the pork side, uh, we cannot afford to have an issue like this that's unique to the U.S. because it's just another headwind on our business that we don't need in the global marketplace. That is certainly true. Dan, are, are there anything, is there anything we can do out here in, in the middle of the country to push this thing towards a resolution? It, it's private parties, right? We just kind of kind of have to watch. Well, we do, but, but groups, be it producer groups or, you know, grain groups, the input, this is important on the grain side as well with livestock being one of the largest customers of U.S. Uh, corn and soybeans. And I know a lot of groups are already very active in Washington, but, but we need to continue to voice the importance of this issue on the West Coast and getting it resolved. Uh, for the whole agricultural supply chain. And uh, the more that the heartland, as I call it, from the Midwest, the producer groups can do that, the better off to hear from their constituents uh, in, in the, uh, the ag-producing region of the U.S. This certainly matters. And folks, the, the spillover effects from delays at the ports can back stuff up all the way to our backyard. We've got to be up to speed and, and up to date on what's happening there at the ports. Dan, thank you for filling us in on that front. While we've got you, though, I'd like to turn our focus to another issue, and it's a good issue for the American beef producers, pork producers writ large, which is high prices here in this country, Dan. But that can make it a challenge to sell into overseas markets. What's USMEF doing in this period of, of elevated domestic meat prices? Well, that, that's a good point, and uh, uh, it's a global situation, not just unique to the U.S., but yeah, the, um, what, one of the key things, we just had our conference in Minneapolis here a few weeks ago, and this is one of the key things we talked about. One of the keys to, to maximizing value for the supply chain is maximizing the cutout, which means in our world, beef and pork, maximizing the value of the carcass. So one of the things we're focused in on is really honing in on some of the underutilized, undervalued cuts and trying to expand the reach of, or base globally of some of these products. And I'll give you a couple of examples. On the pork side, the loin, the pork loin has been historically undervalued. So, uh, you know, while there's key markets like Japan that have taken a lot of loins over the years, we're working to expand the base outside of just Japan. So Mexico, Central America, Europe even, these are focuses that we've been working on to move more of the loin primal. On the beef side, the round is also a similar situation where historically the round has been undervalued. So while Canada and Mexico are huge markets for rounds globally, we're working to do more in places like Taiwan, in Europe, Central America. So really it's about, uh, you know, 
providing more options to our global customers because, you know, uh, on the beef side, especially down about 5% in production at the moment, we got to show other options for these customers. And what better way to do it with cuts that uh, really need to be uh, increased in value like the round and the loin. Dan, can you talk a little bit about how promotion of these cuts works on the ground? Are these U.S. Meat Export Federation employees talking to chefs and restaurateurs to, to drive demand? So without a doubt, yeah. The, our international infrastructure of 90 or so people outside the U.S. in about 20, 19 or 20 regions around the world, this is the core of what they do. They go out and talk about our great story and our great ag production story on beef and pork. Uh, the grain-fed aspect of it, what are the nutritional values of it, but it's also about the merchandising of the product. Hey, I'm used to using a short plate, but I can't get enough short plates. What can I look at? So maybe we look at a, you know, a sliced inside round, and, and this is the way you merchandise it. So they come with options and, and ideas. Uh, buyers, be it food service, retail, wholesalers, distributors, they're always wanting new options and new ideas. And this is the core of what we do. We go in and we provide our buyers around the world with options uh, with, uh, given the current market uh, situation. That is very cool. Having flexibility provides those buyers with uh, with different ways to meet their margin requirements. Dan, we've got a great story developing, at least on the beef side here domestically right now, a little bit more of a challenging side domestically on the pork uh, market. As you look out at the international scene, uh, are you optimistic for meat exports broadly as we move through 2023? Are there any storms on the horizon you're watching for? Well, yeah, the, the bottom line is there's plenty of headwinds, right? Still have a strong dollar in, in Asia. You still have this logistics issue on the West Coast. You have uh, economic uncertainty in general. But put that all aside. Demand internationally has continued to be solid and strong in certain areas. Look at Mexico, Latin America in general. Absolutely on fire for both beef and pork in terms of demand. Food service is booming in that region of the world. Retail is doing well in that region of the world. Uh, we still have some struggles with Asia on food service. Remember, last year we were still in COVID lockdowns, but there will be a time where we'll come out of that and we will have a tailwind on food service in Asia. So, yes, to answer your question, uh, there's plenty of headwinds, but there's also plenty of good news to uh, medium to long term on both beef and pork. Always good to have reasons for optimism when we're looking for global demand around the world. Folks, we've been talking with Dan Halstrom, president and CEF, CEO rather, of the U.S. Meat Export Federation. Dan, as always, thanks for joining us here on AOA. My pleasure, Mike. Thank you. Folks, you can keep up with their work at usmef.org and stick around. We're going to dig into the weather forecast with meteorologist Greg Solier here when AOA returns. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. What do Mick Jagger, Barbara Walters, and Star Jones all have in common? They've all suffered from something called heart valve disease. Heart valve disease affects 11 million Americans, and if left untreated, can lead to death. Unfortunately, less than one in four Americans have much knowledge of this disease that kills more than 25,000 people every year. The good news is that if heart valve disease is treated, patients can recover and live long, happy, and productive lives. 
But in order to treat heart valve disease, you need to know if you have it. If you or your loved ones are over the age of 65, have been treated with radiation to the chest, have been diagnosed with a heart murmur, or have a history of heart disease, it's time to listen to your heart. Ask your doctor today about screening for heart valve disease. A message brought to you by Heart Valve Voice US. For more information about the symptoms and treatment for valve disease, go to heartvalvevoice-us.org. 54. So, basically, it's too late to start saving for retirement, right? Not right. Starting to save, even in your 50s, can really make a difference. Well, right now, saving seems hard to wrap my head around. Plus, with the way this year's been going... <laughs> hey, listen. It's okay. You still got this. Just go to aceyourretirement.org. It's an online tool from AARP that can help you get your retirement savings on track no matter your age. It's free and only takes about three minutes. I like three minutes. Yeah. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll chat with Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach. Just answer a few questions and you'll get a personalized plan and tips to help boost your retirement savings. Tips that are easy to understand and tailored to your lifestyle. I like that too. Plus, it's sponsored by AARP, so you know they got your back. Just head to aceyourretirement.org and make your plan to start saving for retirement. Thanks. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. On the first Wednesday of every month, our friends from the National Corn Growers Association join us here on AOA for a segment we call The Monthly Grind. This month, we talked with Wendy Osborne of Ohio Corn and Ralph Lentz of the U.S. Meat Export Federation Board. Wendy, this partnership between grains and livestock is an important one, isn't it? Yeah, so corn growers recognize that 95% of the world's population lives outside the U.S., so trade is just so important to the U.S. farmer. And American corn farmers want to help increase demand for U.S. beef and pork around the world that in 2021, Beef and pork exports, this is just the exports, Mike, they accounted for 537 million bushels of corn usage, which equates to about $2.94 billion. Ralph, that's a huge figure. What areas around the world look hot for meat exports in 2023? Anything in Asia, Korea, Japan, China, they, they all love our corn-fed beef. That's not duplicated anywhere in the world. Pork products are moving well. They've got a taste of our red meat, and they don't like fish anymore. They're moving more than red meats. Tune in Wednesday, July 5th for the next Monthly Grind on AOA. In today's troubled world, our USA Armed Forces stand ready to protect you, your family, and our American way of life. When veterans return to civilian life, they deserve your recognition and support. You can help put vets to work by donating your car, truck, or van to Patriotic Hearts. Your donation will directly support programs to help vets find jobs or even start their own business. Donate today for fast, free pickup of your vehicle, running or not. Operators are standing by to answer questions about making a tax-deductible vehicle donation. Find out how you can make a difference in the life of a United States veteran. Call 800-209-6416 for 24-hour response. Call 800-209-6416. 800-209-6416. That's 800-209-6416. Put a frog in a pot of boiling water and it'll jump right out. But put a frog in a pot of cool water and slowly heat it up, that frog will boil. As a metaphor for us and all that we go through as veterans, it's a story that rings true. We learn to endure the heat in silence. We apply what we learn to life, the bills, the job, the family, things we're expected to handle with ease. When life heats up around us, we just try to stay afloat. 
we let the water boil. Reaching out isn't easy, but you've never been interested in easy. You join because you are not afraid of hard work. You are not a frog. If you or a veteran you know needs support, don't wait until the water boils. Reach out. Find resources at va.gov reach. That's va.gov reach. Brought to you by the United States Department of Veterans Affairs and the Ad Council. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. AOA continues today, and as we were talking about earlier in the program with Dwayne Bussey of Bolt Marketing, all eyes are really on the forecast ahead. Concern about this weather market and corn and soybeans and where it could go from here. Well, joining us for some insight is Greg Solier. He's meteorologist every weekend on This Week in Agribusiness. And Greg, thanks for joining us on AOA today. Well, thank you there, Mike. A pleasure to be with you here, sir. Let's start with what's happening over in the eastern Corn Belt. Greg, let's start east and move our way west. They have been, they've gotten dry. Is there any outlook for a potential moisture for the eastern Corn Belt in this next week? I I think there is, but it's primarily that southeastern and southern Corn Belt area that I-70 corridor on southward won't be much to write home about. They did get a a little bit at a tenth to a quarter local third in some of those western Ohio northern Indiana locales and it may be comparable uh, this weekend you go farther northeast up into Michigan that's sort of the blowtorched area same with sections of Ohio as you pointed out rootless uh, corn 75 percent plus uh, dry and very dry very short very short on the uh, soil moisture situation through Michigan and then it gets kind of better ish as you venture to the west and southwest they had some quarter inch rains in the northeastern Illinois uh, Illinois. Some spots last weekend, an inch or two, uh, just roughly south of a Springfield Champaign line. So they're limping along okay, and it may be that same corridor that sees some quarter to half the local three-quarter inch amounts over the weekend, uh, and then better should venture into the far south and southwestern Corn Belt locales, and not much to speak of except for some building heat into the north and northwestern upper uh, reaches of the Corn Belt, upper midwestern locales, kind of the other piece or small piece of the hot high that usually when it's a non-El Nino year, is situated concrete the whole nine yards right over the plains parts of the Corn Belt. This year, El Nino is fragmented, so you get a little bubble high that's contributed to the fire situation in Canada. The main mother load, if you will, of the heat, and it is big time, not fit for man or beast. Dallas-Fort Worth, Dalhart, down past the Rio Grande, so a good chunk of Texas, and probably into the central and western Gulf Coast areas, uh, 100, 105, 110 actual air temperatures with a very oppressive humidity there. So uh, yeah, there's some moisture for the central and southern Corn Belt this weekend. It'll be almost a five-day period before something else gets going uh heat on the plains uh big rain by the way in the southeastern plains lower mississippi valley delta region uh some of those same areas are that have had recent rains and storms a little farther east but nonetheless uh, arkansas they're short 50 55 60 percent on soil moisture uh uh, three to five four to eight something like that in that corridor that's inches of rain by the way down to the i-10 and i-20 corridor and then 
out west northwest uh, late in the weekend early next week another impressive el nino driven you don't see it in this set of maps and charts in summertime early summertime a uh, system that will come into the pacific northwest northern california northern and central rockies idaho montana probably some flooding issues there rapid snow melt and then that system may may impact at least a scattering of showers and thunderstorms to at least ease the fire situation the dryness and drought roughly lake winnipeg on westward into the first half of next week well good points greg and you know we haven't heard much about the fire season in the western half of the u.s i'm sure all that snow and moisture we have heard about it up in canada but as i take a look at the drought monitor greg i've got to imagine the plains fire risk across kansas and uh, parts of eastern nebraska central parts of missouri that area still looks bone dry here on the drought monitor any chance for relief in that uh, that pocket of country for rain here this next week yeah you brought up a, a good point uh, here in recent visits where you know some of those high plains areas it's all or nothing a tenth of an inch to 10 inches of rain and it may be that kind of setup that at least uh, may you know fire spark up some fire potential uh, at the onset but generally speaking probably get some active and severe th thunderstorm clusters from the southern canadian prairie down through the northern and central plain states areas into the first half of next week and then lock that system down there so there may be a tendency for some localized and we saw that in the high plains areas of kansas and uh, nebraska some localized you know, all or nothing uh, pockets of marginal improvement to uh, dryness and drought there so you know from a psychological standpoint rain is in the forecast for parts of the northern and central plains watch the lightning potential as well won't knock down the hot ridge into southern oklahoma and texas uh and then uh points out of the east it's another one of these bubble highs that sets up the next week into michigan the northern and eastern Great lakes region so after that weekend thing it may be a seven to ten day spell where there's nothing going on into the northern and eastern parts of uh, the corn belt at least as they apply to the lower lakes region so yeah the plain states you know some improvement but you know once you get past like you know mid-may around here it's more or less all or nothing on any of these thunderstorms very much a mediterranean type climate where you get you know, again, downpours in some spots and two drops of rain in others. Greg, the trade right now, whether it's corn, soybeans, wheat, everybody's trying to figure out, is this going to be a dry, hot summer or is this going to be a wet summer? And we'll see enough grain fill come later in the season. From your perspective, as you overlook the central part of the United States here over the next couple of months, is your bias towards hot and dry or what do you think is going to happen? Bias is towards kind of a bullish rain outlook uh, to start and then uh, generally moving them back into uh, kind of a, a drier scenario in those northern and central plains areas as it applies to the Corn Belt. Probably going to come too late now, considering what we're observing in Ohio and Michigan. But it may be that kind of I-57 Interstate 55 corridor that runs through the central parts of uh, the Corn Belt, east and south of there to I-70. I think some of these tropical systems, they're not named, but there's one coming up next week or the following week into the southeastern states actually back build or back up into the eastern and southern Corn Belt. So it may come late, but it may be a trend towards wetter weather over the spot, the southeastern half of the Corn Belt uh, as we move deeper on into uh, late to June, more likely July and August. And uh, for the northwestern and westernmost it reaches the Corn Belt, I think uh, we'll have some semblance of short-term moisture backing into another uh, drier scenario. And again, the Plain States, I think, are generally scheduled to move back into some drier and uh, more increased drought concerns there as we get deeper into the summertime season. So we're kind of going to at least reverse roles here from what we've seen the past couple of weeks and what we will see the next week to 10 days where wetter gets drier, uh, drier, except for parts of the northern and northeastern Corn Belt. I think they stay in a predicament around here, but maybe those eastern and southern areas will have a tendency for
for uh, increased moisture concerns, maybe even too much of a thing as you get down to the I-70 corridor in Ohio Valley on southward. So another reversing of roles there. Welcome to El Nino that sticks around and plays with us here probably right through uh, early to mid-winter here next year. All right, folks. Well, it doesn't sound like there's going to be any relief from the market-driven gyrations or the weather-driven market gyrations. Greg Solier, meteorologist on This Week in Agribusiness. Greg, as always, thanks for joining us here on AOA. Thanks for the invite. Have a great day. Folks, tune in tomorrow. We'll talk with Glenn Tonser about meat demand for the month of May. We'll see you then for more AOA. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Why do you listen? Anytime I'm talking to a friend about new music and I don't know what it is, it's probably because they were listening to the radio and I wasn't. I'm nosy. I like to know what's going on, and radio usually is right there telling me what and when is going on and where it's going on. Well, listen in the barn, skid loader, tractor, and just about anywhere you can. When you put the lights on on the barn, the radio went on. Why do you listen? Go to whyilisten.com, tell us why you listen, and you have a chance to win $500. Visit whyilisten.com today. Get on board. The water is open. It's time to go boating and fishing and leave stress in our wake. Feel the wind as we ride and a fish on the line. Reel in our first catch and feel the sun at our backs. It's get out on the water season. It's time to get on board. Find out where to get on board near you. Visit Take Me Fishing and Discover Boating to learn more. And please recreate responsibly. Get on board. You are not your diagnosis. A medical chart is not your identity. And vision loss does not define you. Your drive shows who you are. And you are not alone. Because we are driven too. To be a beacon of strength. A champion of courage. An advocate for hope. You are not alone. Because we are stronger together. We drive the research for the cures we are finding. We're fighting macular degeneration, retinitis pigmentosa, Usher syndrome, and the entire spectrum of blinding retinal diseases. We fund. We fight. We win. We, 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 we are, are the, the foundation, foundation fighting, fighting blindness. blindness. Together, we are fighting blindness. Join the fight at fightingblindness.org.